Hello and welcome to another episode of the Green Minds Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Sigletti. Climate policy. Depending on who you ask, it might be described as our only hope to make broad climate improvements, or the environmental anchor, deadlocked and dragging behind the nimbler corporate and social sectors. On another point, the agreement is wider. Its mechanisms and results differ greatly from country to country, even city to city. On that note, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Miranda Schreers. Miranda is a truly mobile political scientist. After a decade as a professor at the University of Maryland, she moved on to teach and research at Harvard, Utrecht, and several universities in Japan. In 2007, she took up a post at the Free University of Berlin, where she led the Research Center for Environmental Policy and has spent the last few years as the Chair of Environmental and Climate Policy at the Technical University of Munich. In the last decade, she's also been a member of and presided over various councils, including the German Advisory Council on the Environment and the European Environment and Sustainable Development Council, And perhaps most interestingly, she was appointed by Angela Merkel to the German Ethics Commission for a Secure Energy Supply, helping guide the move to a post-nuclear Germany. She's written on everything from nuclear waste storage to citizens' involvement in climate policy. Perhaps unsurprisingly, she's had a particular focus on how climate politics operate in different national, sub- and supranational contexts. We dig into these different relationships to climate change in China, the EU, and Germany, where the Greens are back in government in a big way, with some time for cities and subnational leadership, and, of course, a little civil disagreement on nuclear's role in the energy transition. It's a broad conversation, but it feels like there is so much left to be discussed. I really hope you enjoy. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Schroers. Thank you very much. Really nice to be here, Alec. So I guess I'd love to start with a little bit about your story. Um, what got you into sustainability in the first place? Was it one big moment or uh, a series of factors? I think that my uh, interest in sustainability uh, goes back to my childhood because I grew up in a small town in upstate New York and there were lots of woods around me. We spent a lot of time uh, as children with my parents, uh, also in Canada, um, there on on Lake Huron, Georgian Bay to be more specific. But I also saw a lot of pollution as a child. I saw people throwing garbage out of their car windows. I saw Lake Erie uh, turned green and fish dying. used to have waves where the dead fish would wash up to shore because the lakes were so polluted. So that really started to get me concerned already as a child about the state of the environment. But academically, it began when in, let's say, the mid-1980s, I was thinking much more about where am I going with my own future, and I started to think about dissertation topics. And at the time, uh, globally, we were very concerned about the topics of acid rain, the topic of nuclear proliferation, and the topic of uh, Chernobyl associated with that. Ozone depletion was very big, and they were starting, just starting to talk globally about climate change. And preparations began for the first United Nations Conference on Environment and Development, which was held in 1992. But the preparations began already in the late 1980s for that. So it was around that time that I was starting to look for a dissertation topic. And I realized that there was very, very little work that had been done on climate politics 
and climate policy making. At the time, you could read almost everything that was written on the subject. There was really so little about it. And that, that got me interested. And since I had also in my life had quite a lot of international opportunities, I had lived in um, not only North America, but I had also spent substantial time in Japan and have roots in, in Europe. That got me thinking about doing a comparative study of uh, climate policy making, acid rain policy making, and ozone depletion policy making in the United States, Germany, the Netherlands, and Japan. So that's kind of what got me started. Fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah. I spent some time over on Georgian Bay. It's really gorgeous, but I think you do find that a lot across the Northeast. There's this contrast between the natural beauty and then a very industrial part of, of the continent. So, you know, was it a sustainability first idea and then you started looking at policy more, or do you have more of a policy background and then wanted to build sustainability on top of that? Well, you know, one of the things that's possible in North America, maybe also in England, it's less common on the European continent, is that you have an opportunity with a liberal arts education to shift around from what you do as a bachelor's to a master's student into being a doctoral student. So I, um, as a bachelor's student, was taking courses on biology and chemistry but at the same time, I was taking courses on international studies and international relations. And I realized that for me, what was interesting is this interdisciplinary nexus. How do you bring together scientific understanding and research with more social science perspectives? In fact, back then and still today, it's a stretch. It's something that isn't that well institutionalized. It's still hard to do that kind of interdisciplinary work, although it's getting easier. But that's what really interested me. I wanted to be able to work on what I saw as really important environmental and climate issues, but to do it from a perspective where we look at how institutions and governments frame um, what is possible and how they either uh, support or inhibit action. And the reason for that comparative interest of mine was that I had also spent time as an exchange student. So I lived in Japan when I was 16 for a year, and I went back when I was 20. And I realized that things were being done pretty differently there than what I had seen in Europe or in the United States. And so that got me into thinking about how is it that in different cultures and countries, science um, and the warnings of science are addressed differently. Absolutely. I think it's, it's interesting that you, you bring up that topic of what is possible. I know that's something that's been a big part of the discussion in the last year, and I've been reading a lot recently about this sort of resurgence of Keynesianism and the idea that what we can do, we can afford in response to the often fiscal argument around climate policy. Do you think that this is, this is really shifting right now, that governments are starting to come around to the idea that you know, financial constraints just are not as important as they once were, or is this happening in some places and not others? You know, I think what has changed, climate change has been on the agenda for at least since the late 1980s politically, but action has been kind of uh, incremental. And although we have made some progress in some areas, uh, big, deep changes have, have been slow to come about. And one of the arguments is exactly what you say, it costs too much. And that's an old argument. We've heard that about um, dealing with pollution problems for forever, actually. Environmental protection is something that's costly and we don't really have the money for it. Well, that argumentation is really problematic because one, it's often not true. 
you can get a lot of progress and uh, save a lot of money through efficiency improvements. You know, when we use resources more efficiently, when we uh, pollute less, we also have less damage to have to, to clean up and pay for. At the same time, there's the reality that our understanding of what we're doing to the planet has improved. We know so much more now about just how serious climate change is and just how serious biodiversity loss is and just how serious the pollution of the oceans are. That It's getting to the point people are, are, are waking up to the reality we're actually in a crisis time. That if we don't act, then the costs that we will face are so enormous. Climate change, people, I think, are starting to better understand that when you have a, a temperature increase of one degree centigrade, uh, on average, it, it's starting to be noticeable that that means that you have more heavy storms and rainfalls and droughts. And slowly, I think people are also realizing that if you go to two degrees centigrade, you're getting to the point where that temperature increase is, is going to be disastrous for an awful lot of communities. It's going to mean flooding. It's going to mean loss of land. It's going to mean really destructive storms. It's going to mean more climate migrants. Take it to three degrees centigrade, and we're going to start seeing the loss of huge amounts of territory. Florida is gone. The Netherlands is gone, unless you can build much, much higher dikes. Northern Germany is gone. Uh, large parts of England are gone. Forget all the small island states. They're long gone, right? Mm -hmm. and, and when you start thinking that way, you're realizing that the cost factor is at a, a totally different dimension. So yes, dealing with climate change is going to be really, really, really expensive. But not dealing with climate change is actually not really an option because the costs are, are beyond imaginable if you allow the temperatures to soar up to two, three degree or three degrees centigrade. And that's the trajectory we're on right now. We're on the trajectory that could very easily take us to a three-degree world if we don't really start making changes now. For sure. I think one of the interesting components of that is that, you know, large parts of Florida and the Netherlands might both be underwater, but there are very different responses to the threat of climate change in Florida and the Netherlands, for example. You've written a lot about how climate change policy differs a lot between countries uh, where where do you think this comes from specifically? Is it mostly political differences or something to do with inherent cultural ideas? I think this goes back to where we started in the sense that the interface between science and politics is so important. So traditionally, uh, a lot of room has been given to scientists to shape policies in a lot of areas. But we also know that science can be manipulated. And that is something that we have seen for decades now, that there have been particular industrial interests and in particular uh, fossil fuel industries that have seen their own future threatened by action on climate change. And they've pushed back and they've funded climate skeptical science and they have um, done their best to uh, put the brakes on, on climate activism. That's slowly starting to change now. You're starting to see more and more big fossil fuel industrial actors waking up to the reality that things need to change, although there's still a long ways to go there. But if you compare, for example, 
what's going on in the United States with what has been going on in England or Germany, uh, we see that all three countries have fossil fuel industries, but the fossil fuel industry in the United States is of a dimension that's so much bigger than anything you have in England, anything we have in Germany. And um, another difference, I think, is that in the European context, we, we have parliamentary systems that make it easier for environmental voices to be heard. So the Green Party that arose within Germany, I think, has made a big difference on the European continent in terms of thinking about climate change and recognizing the threat and getting that into policy processes. So a lot of the climate skepticism has come from the US, it's come from Russia, it's come in part from India, although we're starting to see some important changes there. And I think that is one of the reasons we're seeing the differences in policy processes that we're seeing. You know, what's going on in Germany right now is pretty exciting. There's yeah. um, a new government in office. Um, uh, it's a, we call it a traffic light um, coalition, um, the Green Party for Go, um, the Social Democratic Party, the Red, and um, the Free Democrats, the, the Yellow Party. Um, this traffic light uh, coalition has put climate change on the political agenda in a way uh, that takes it beyond what had already been seen in many international comparisons as a pretty progressive policy from a big industrial player. Germany is now talking about climate neutrality by 2045, uh, reaching 80% renewables in its electricity mix, maybe as early as 2030. This is starting to really, really change the dynamics of the debate. And it's not only in Germany, it's also in other countries. England has done a lot with the development of offshore wind. Norway is, despite being a big gas and oil producer, becoming a leader in moving to electric vehicles that are fueled by hydropower. So I think we are starting to see a development, a kind of new dynamism in climate activism. For me, that, that gives hope. It gives hope that despite the many, many uh, industrial actors that have tried to slow progress, and despite governments that uh, are too focused on the here and now and not on just on, on, on the longer term problems, despite the fact that you have maybe 10-15% of every public that is just basically not interested in what the scientific community has to say, we are seeing more and more people who are saying we need action now and it's starting to be seen in the political world as well. I think I would agree with you that that, that dynamism is in a lot of places and that need for action is seen in, in a lot of places but I also think that it's difficult to find other countries with green parties as strong as the greens are in, in Germany right now. I look at places like the UK, Canada, the US, Japan and the presence of a kind of strong green political party is just lacking despite them having strong environmental movements. Do you think there are some unique factors in the German context that have driven that rise? Certainly the reason that the German Green Party has become as big and powerful as it has goes back quite a long ways to how policy and decisions around energy questions were made here. And historical factors um, have shaped things a lot. Uh, the decision to invest more heavily in nuclear 
nuclear energy in Germany was something that was not accepted by broad groups within the public. That has a lot to do with concerns about the connection between peaceful atomic energy use and the potential for nuclear war. And you have to remember that Germany in the 1980s was a divided country. And uh, if there was going to be a nuclear war between the Soviet Union, which existed at the time, and the United States or the countries of the West, there was a lot of concern in Germany that Germany would be ground zero. And so the development of uh, atomic energy and then efforts to station ballistic missiles in, in German territory um, led to a lot of concern here. And then you had Three Mile Island in the US and you had Chernobyl in the Ukraine, um, former Soviet Union. And Germany was impacted directly by the radiative fallout from the uh, Chernobyl nuclear accident. So that combined with this sense of uh, unease about atomic energy and, and led to the rise of a lot of grassroots movements calling for a new kind of energy. And what was interesting is it wasn't just a question about which energy technology, but it was a question about how are decisions about energy made? And the idea that it's something that should be more democratic, that we need more voice from citizens in issues about which kinds of energy and where and how much. So the changes that, that started in the 80s, yeah, they've increased with time. And, and the Fukushima nuclear accident was yet that next push to say, let's not focus on these big centralized kinds of energy forms and instead build an energy structure that is much more dependent on decentralized structures. Um, and that's possible where you have more renewables, more photovoltaics, more wind parks. And, and that's really led to, to changes that uh, I think have then impacted other places in Europe as well. So I think the German example has shown other countries that even a country that is the world's, I think, fifth largest uh, exporter can become a much greener country. Of course, other countries in Europe were doing things too. Denmark is ahead of Germany when it comes to the development of wind power. You have a lot more wind power in Denmark. And Norway has uh, done a lot with, with hydropower, uh, same with Sweden or Austria. But for the development of new renewables, uh, Germany has, has played a pretty important role as a big industrial player. And that's influenced things in Japan. After the Fukushima accident in Japan, there were huge numbers of groups from Japan coming to Germany and looking at how is Germany doing it? Why is Germany doing it? And it's had some, some diffusion impact so that now Japan has a lot more photovoltaic than it used to. It's not as advanced with wind, but you're seeing some, some important changes there too. I think it's fascinating, but, but also tragic in a way that the, the German green movement comes out of the anti-nuclear movement. I think it's just difficult to see kind of reactors not only not being built in the future, but being taken down before their, their lifetimes are expended. And in replacement of that, you know, there's an increased dependence on natural gas imports from Russia and on continuing to fire um, coal plants, which, which to my knowledge cause uh, a lot more casualties over the century than, than nuclear energy would. I also just think it's so interesting that this accident in Fukushima across the world from Germany in a very different context had so much more of an impact on Germany than many other places around the world. Uh, and there's this big EU debate right now about kind of how to label nuclear or natural gas as, as green or not green. Where do you stand specifically in that debate? 
Um, I take a rather different perspective on it than you do. I, I the way that you presented that's, that's it here. why I was so excited to have you on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, um, I grew up not that far away from Three Mile Island, and I can remember in school uh, wondering if uh, we would have to evacuate um, because of it. Chernobyl uh, obviously was huge, and you have to remember that the Chernobyl nuclear accident has left uh, a region in, in the now Ukraine that will be closed off to any kind of human settlement um, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the sarcophagus that is around the um, Chernobyl nuclear plant, um, where you had the meltdown um, first, uh, an initial containment uh, center was built around it, and that started to crumble because of the radioactivity. And they have had to spend billions of euros developing a new containment for the Chernobyl nuclear plant because of the, the high level of radiation that will remain for thousands and thousands of years. So one, don't forget just how serious these accidents are. And it means that huge areas of territory are lost to any kind of human use. Same is true for Fukushima. You know, there are huge areas around the Fukushima nuclear plant that will remain off limits to humans for, for decades, if not hundreds of years. Beyond that is the whole question of what do we do with the high-level radioactive waste that comes out of all the nuclear power plants we have? There are some 400-plus nuclear power plants in the world, and there is not a single acting, operating high-level radioactive waste facility. All of the high-level radioactive waste in the world right now is in temporary storage. So what does that mean? It means it's in storage containers that are built to, to hold it for a few decades, but not longer. And this high-level radioactive waste remains highly radioactive for hundreds of thousands of years. So imagine what that means for future generations. Somebody is going to have to pay the cost of dealing with our use of high-level radioactive elements to produce energy. So we're basically living on future generations' goodwill and uh, hope that they will figure out how to deal with it. So when Germany decided to um, shift away from, from nuclear, and it did the lead to more use of coal. And, and yes, that was problematic. It, you could argue not enough was done early enough to do more with renewables. Um, and I think that is now something that is being tackled. There are three things being tackled. One, the phase out of nuclear uh, should be completed at the end of 2022. The uh, phase out of coal, uh, according to the last government, should be completed by 2038. The new government is talking by around 2030. And that means that we have to triple the build out of renewable energy in the next um, eight to years. So it will mean some really exciting change. One last point. I know I'm talking a lot here. Don't worry. But, but think about um, uh, where investments in energy went in the last decades. And those investments were uh, very, very heavily into nuclear energy. 50 to 75% of energy research budgets went into nuclear energy. Well, what about all of the potential that was lost because of the extremely expensive funding into this one kind of energy source and how much could have been done with all of that money and other kinds, including um, more quickly phasing out coal, I guess. That's, that's a new statistic for me. <laughs> I've heard nuclear energy characterized as underfunded in terms of research. I think I definitely agree with a lot of the, the points you've made, and it, it's no one's ideal solution. Um, but in the, in the same way that nuclear is relying on the, the suffering, the ingenuity of future generations, 
you know, so is pumping more CO2 into the atmosphere. You're relying on them to find a way to draw it back down. Uh, but also until we have a proper storage solution for renewable energy, so is kind of waiting on them to be able to find a way to link the grid up enough or store enough of that energy that, that we can actually kind of use it um, in a flexible way, as opposed to relying on, you know, different wind patterns or a, a day and night cycle. Yeah, so I, I think obviously these are these are strong points, but but so, so, yeah, um, a couple of things. One, um, I think Germany has shown that it is totally possible to phase out nuclear and start phasing out coal and gas and build up renewables. So renewables now account for mm, 45, 47% of electricity production in the country. In the year 1990, it was 3%. In the year 2000, it was 6%. So it's really in the last two decades that the build-out of renewables has picked up steam. And yet we're saying that steam hasn't been enough. It hasn't been strong enough. We need it faster and more. And what we're also seeing now, as more and more countries go into renewables, the cost of renewables have plummeted. So renewables are now the cheapest form of energy there is. It doesn't pay to build a new power plant. It's much cheaper to um, invest in renewables. And we're also starting to see really fast and exciting advances in battery storage opportunities. I think what we're going to see in the next decade is a super fast transition in the transport sector because the automobile companies are politically being pressured to make that happen. And they're starting to recognize that time is ticking on the fossil fuels. So there will be one potential source of battery storage in, in those electric automobiles. I think another big transition is happening now in that we're finding new ways to develop photovoltaics. And there will be uh, kinds of photovoltaics um, that we, we haven't in the past had, where you have photovoltaics, for example, on the sides of buildings rather than just on the rooftops. And offshore wind, the turbines, uh, they are a factor of 10 to 20 times more powerful today than they were 15, 20 years ago. So we've seen huge efficiency improvements there. But I, I recognize what you're saying. Um, we are still incredibly dependent on fossil fuels around the world. Nuclear, uh, less so. Nuclear um, is not that big a global electricity supply. The 430 plus or minus nuclear power plants in the world have been at that number for more or less the time since Chernobyl. Old ones are being phased down and, and new ones um, are being built, but primarily in China and in the Middle East countries. So we'll see. We'll see what happens there. For sure. I'm, I'm really hopeful um, that, that the transition speeds up and the, the model proves workable. One of the big reasons that those costs have come down so much in renewables is that, uh, you know, a lot of the manufacturing processes have exploded in recent decades in China. Um, you've written a lot about China and the kind of role its political system plays. People complain a lot about how democratic processes have not been adequate to facing environmental challenges, but many authoritarian governments who kind of should have the capacity to make strong, long-lasting environmental decisions have not demonstrated a, a necessarily better record. China is trying to build out this kind of new model of environmental authoritarianism. Uh, do you think that's practical? What do you think that might look like in the future? 
So China is, um, I think, the country that will have the biggest impact on whether or not we can keep globally within a 1.5 or 2 degrees centigrade target. And that is simply because China today is 28 or 29 percent of global CO2 emissions. The Chinese population will soon stabilize. But it um, so we will um, still see a couple hundred million more people join the population in China in the next few years. And China has been the manufacturing center for the world for the last 20 or 30 years. A lot of that has been based on coal. So it's true that China paid very little attention to pollution problems in the first decades of its rapid growth, the 1980s, 90s. It started to change, however, in the 2000s. And that's partly because China started to itself be impacted by its own pollution. And the quality of the air being so bad that it was way beyond World Health Organization safety standards. The reality that people were dying because of that air pollution, hundreds of thousands of early deaths because of it. Water that was so polluted that you really just couldn't do anything in order to clean it and drink it anymore. I think things like that. Also, also the desertification problem that China was facing um, in the Mao years. There was a program to deforest and to even demountainize, to cut away mountains uh, in order to have more land for agriculture. Back in the 1950s, there was an insane campaign to try to improve the productivity of agriculture by killing the birds because the birds were eating the grain. And in fact, what that ended up doing was contributing to uh, locust populations and insect populations. And, and you ended up having um, a terrible, terrible agricultural harvest and, and great famine. So the past pollution problems started to catch up. And in the 2000s, you finally had uh, more governmental uh, awareness of what was going on and also willingness to act. So I would no longer say that China is not doing anything on, on environment or climate. In fact, in some areas, China has become a world leader. China has more photovoltaic capacity and wind capacity than any other country in the world. And China has uh, also become one of the world's manufacturing centers for these kind of renewable energies. That, of course, um, has angered some in Europe who think that that should be done here. But we should also greet the fact that China is, is starting to pay more attention. That said, with uh, rising energy prices today, we're hearing that China is uh, using more coal-fired power plants again, and pollution is rising again. So it really means that we need to stay on, on board. And as far as I'm concerned, we also really need to be careful not to enter into a new Cold War with China, but to partner with China on dealing with these big global problems like climate. Yeah, I think, I think the, uh, the partner where possible method is definitely the right approach. And, and just to dig a little bit deeper into the, the details of that, do you feel that the Chinese government has kind of proactively noticed the, the long-term economic or political challenges presented by sustainability? Or, or has it been a two-step process where the effects of things like air quality on its citizens have created public pressure that has filtered through to the government? There's been I mean, both. I mean, there's been bottom-up pressure. Uh, there's also some interesting things happening from the bottom up. Uh, the citizens now have the ability to report pollution when they see it. And um, there are tens of thousands of reports that are made by citizens to complain about pollution, some of which then gets addressed, not all of it, of course. Top-down, however, is also really important still in China. When I first went to China, 
environment was really a, a second or third class policy issue. But in the meantime, China has elevated environmental protection first to um, a state environmental protection administration, then to a ministry of environment, and now to a ministry of environment and ecology. Climate change is, is also um, much more seriously on the agenda. So not as seriously as in Germany, you know, climate change, there's a climate neutrality target for 2060 in, mm -hmm. in China, 2070 in India. It would be nice if in China that could be moved up a little bit because 2070 is probably too late for 1.5 or 2 degrees. Yeah, for, for sure. Um, especially when you consider their continued growth. So I think an Another leader or huge part of the climate puzzle is, is obviously the EU, and they operate very, very different system where the kind of subnational member states all have really important leadership roles in driving things like climate policy in a way that contrasts a lot with that top-down Chinese style. I was really interested, I, I read in one of your papers that you made the case that actually the kind of rotating leadership of the EU has been helpful in making climate progress. That seems a little bit counterintuitive to me. I usually think of shifting governments or, or discontinuity in power as a challenge when trying to make these long-term strategies and carry them out over decades. But why do you think that has been helpful? Well, I think there's a couple of things about the EU that have made it possible for the EU to be the global leader on, on environment and climate. And when I say the global leader, I mean in the sense of for big players, the EU has been the actor that has been pushing the most on, on getting new ideas onto the global agenda. And one is that, in fact, the EU has quite a lot of authority in this area. In, within the European Union treaties, environment is an area where the European Union can set targets and policies based on what they call qualified majority decision-making. So you don't need a unanimous decision. You need a qualified majority of countries and population within EU to stand behind the idea, for example, of having renewable energy targets for the European Union or having climate neutrality targets for the EU. And what you've also had are um, a fairly large number of countries that have fairly uh, green populations in terms of green parties or parties that might not be called green parties, but that are very supportive of sustainability issues. So the European Parliament has been another push factor, um, climate and sustainability issues. And the rotating European presidency that you were talking about just now has been a chance for um, especially the greener of the European countries to set the agenda when they are in that presidency and to push for issues that are important on the green agenda. And so the push comes and usually one or two main policy areas are pushed hard. And because we know there's always limited political capital in any government, once you've gotten your key issues on the agenda, you can pass the baton on to the next player and um, let them push harder. Yeah, that's, that's so exciting. I guess to, to wrap up a little bit, I'd, I'd love to ask, you know, what are you working on right now and, and what are the big trends you see in environmental policy in the EU or internationally? Oh, I'm working on several different issues. One is trying to help find a high-level radioactive waste management site for the German uh, high-level radioactive waste. Sounds um, simple. And so, so that is uh, engaging in a lot of dialogue with society and decision makers and trying to make sure that the process is um, scientifically based and transparent. Um, but we're also looking at more on-the-ground kinds of solutions 
like what would a mobility transformation mean for a metropolitan region like the one I'm in, in, in the Munich area? Or what can we do to improve our understanding of how policy action within urban areas is contributing to CO2 emission reductions? So we actually haven't been very detailed yet in the past on how we measure the impact of specific policies on reducing CO2 emissions. So that's an area we're looking at. And teaching, teaching, teaching. I'm, I'm sure that takes up a lot of time. Would, would you like to tell us maybe a little bit about the, the, those kind of ideas of cities and subnational bodies as climate leaders? Yeah, actually, cities are super important in this area because that 60 to 70% of the world's population will be urban. Already a large percentage is urban and urban areas are resource intensive. They, they use a lot of energy and they use a lot of resources, but they're also in part because they're dense places where there's a lot of potential for change. So one of the things with the mobility transformation, for example, is the question, how can we make mobility more climate friendly, but also user friendly and uh, integrated into urban areas. And that can be everything from uh, making bicycling more possible and safer to uh, intermodal transportation where you can walk or take the metro or bicycle to get to the train and travel by train throughout the European continent to also thinking about how we use space. So one of the really interesting things in the corona times is that we all needed to be outside much more. And then we started to realize just how much space in cities is taken by cars that are parked. And they're parked somewhere between 95 and 98% of the time on average. So cars use not a lot of space that could instead be used for kids playing on the ground or outside, or for restaurants to have outdoor seating. And that too is, is kind of related to mobility. It's related to how we think about What's the best use of the limited space we have? And another really important area is the question of how cities can be greened so that they are um, less heat island impacted. Heat islands, um, the idea that the concrete and tarred surfaces of cities makes them even hotter than, than the temperatures otherwise. And, and that's going to be a problem as we have more and more climate change, that even in, in moderate European temperatures, most of Europe is not tropical temperatures, it's fairly moderate temperatures historically, that's starting to change. We're going to have a lot more 35 degrees centigrade days, we're going to have a lot more 40 degrees centigrade, and then having cities that are greener. Imagine, you know, uh, skyscrapers, instead of just being concrete blocks, are actually green jungles because uh, the sides of the buildings are green. Uh, you might plant vegetables, you might plant ivy, um, you might have trees growing on the roof, but there are a lot of things that can and will be done in the next year. I'm, I'm shocked when I walk through London and it's such a dense city and so much of it, you know, there's a, a six lane road about 50 meters from my house and it's just, it's, it's like a, a river that you have to navigate across. Uh, I guess the, the very last thing I promise would be, um, do you have a, a podcast or a book or, or any kind of art recommendation in the field of sustainability, something that's exciting you right now? Um, there are a lot of things going on. Um, there is a climate art project that you can look at 
on the web, which is pretty cool. It shows different things that are being done in cities uh, related to climate in art and helping people to better understand climate change that way. There's also some an amazing number of new books coming out, but some that have um, caught my attention. One is called uh, The Sixth Extinction, an Unnatural History by Elizabeth Colbert. And that, I think, kind of highlights just how serious uh, the situation is now. A second um, called The Silent Earth. Maybe you know Rachel Carson's uh, 1962 book um, that uh, focused our attention on what was uh, going on with the excessive use of pesticides. So taking off on that, David Golston has written a book called Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse, which is also tied to some really important sustainability questions. And then one final one, um, Eric Holthouse has a book called The Future of the Earth, A Radical Vision of What is Possible. And there too, you can start thinking about what could the world look like? How could it be done? So all interesting books. Um, and um, I don't know if you've seen the movie, Don't Look Up, but... Um, I haven't yet, uh, I'm under a lot of pressure. Yeah, it is um, uh, maybe also worth uh, watching. It, it um, is a, a kind of a comedy, but makes us think a little bit about what are we doing to ourselves when we don't take climate change and biodiversity loss seriously. Spectacular. Um, well, I'll be sure to link those recommendations. Uh, Dr. Schwerz, thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure, Alex. Thanks for the, the interview. Again, all the way from Munich, that was Dr. Miranda Schwerz. What did you think of the interview? I know I came out with easily as many questions as I went in with. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Can modern multilateral democracy build a new relationship to the environment and time? What political mechanisms drive climate policy in your home country? And is there anyone from the field you'd like us to have on? please email us at ibgreenminds at gmail.com. Also, that research stat Miranda mentioned absolutely checks out. According to the IEA, nuclear did account for most public energy R&D spending until the year 2000, though it's since been taken over by efficiency and renewable projects. And on the other hand, it is a tiny fraction of the larger corporate R&D budget, which is still stubbornly dominated by oil and gas. So please excuse my ignorance of anything that happened before 1997. Um, I do hope you stick around next week, and your curiosity for continental climate policy remains as grand. Shirin will be talking to the folks from EU Taxonomy about just what ought to be labeled sustainable, and so much more.